You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. Rock and roll! Rock and roll! Stop wasting my This review is brought to you by St. Hubbins and Smalls presents Saucy Jack, a musical rendition of Jack the Ripper. You'll be tapping your feet to the music as you follow the misunderstood serial killer through the streets of Whitechapel looking for love. Renowned theatrical producer Mort Guffman said, This is for real. Saucy Jack, now playing at Themeland Amusement Park and Wally World USA. Saucy Jack. You're a naughty one, Saucy Jack, you're a haughty one. Saucy Jack, when the street lamps gaslight flickers and fails, then you see the last light glinting off the entrails. Oh, naughty, 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 you're a sneaky one. A Saucy Jack, you're a cheeky one. Welcome back to Lunchtime Movie Review. I'm Matt. I'm Jason. I'm Greg. And Patrick. And we've got another movie from from the eighties, from our childhood. Who's who's got the movie today? Uh, I do, Matt. And uh, this movie is from nineteen eighty four. It is a comedy entitled "This Is Spinal Tap." Is this well, a real comedy? Because last time you brought us a comedy, I wasn't so sure. I I think this qualifies as a real comedy. Patrick hasn't said anything yet, so it might be a real comedy. <laughs> And by the way, Chris isn't here today because we found out he was actually a replicant. All right, so what's this Spinal Tap? It is a faux documentary, uh, a make-believe documentary about a make-believe heavy metal band called Spinal Tap. Also known as Spinal Pap and Spinal Tarp. What year did Spinal Tap come out? This is Spinal Tap come out. 1984. It was filmed in late 1982. It was completed in 1983, and then it just sat on someone's shelf for about a year while Hollywood decided how they were going to market it. They released it, I think, in March of 1984, in at least a limited release. Yeah, it was released March 2nd, 1984. It never really found uh, much of an audience until years later, courtesy of VHS rentals. What what was it up against in... In March of 1984. In March 1984, it was uh, up against Against All Odds, Repo Man, um, Sahara, and Harry and Son, which was released the same week as the Paul Newman film. So it wasn't up against a lot up of Up against big, a lot of shit. Yeah. yeah it, it, March whoa, whoa, tr- whoa. Repo Man. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> Emilio Estevez, punk Repo Man. Yeah. Aliens, Alien in the trunk. Right. You know, fil- films that were released shortly thereafter were Footloose and Splash and Children of the Corn and Police Academy. So it did face some competition later on but around the time that it came out there was march is just a slow slow month so this would be a good pick if you have a film you don't quite know what it's going to do in the theater this would be the movies that you would try to put it up against correct march is traditionally in hollywood a slow month they don't bring out a lot of material february and march and you put you bring out a lot of things that are not going to fare well against sizable competition but this hasn't this has no big star. It does. It's not a big budget or, or anything like this. Is this is really low dollars and just a, a group of comedians 
kind of throwing stuff together. It has Lenny. How, Lenny <laughs> from Laverne and Shirley, which I did. <laughs> and Meathead directs it. Meathead, That's true. Right, Meathead direct, right. But it was Meathead's first direct, uh, directing a, of a film. So, But Lenny was probably the best-known actor of the ensemble at the time. Right, and Laverne and Shirley's going on right now. Uh, Laverne and Shirley, I think, ended in 83. So it, when he filmed it, it was still going on. But uh, Laverne and Shirley was over by the time it came out. Well, Greg, what, what's this movie about? My name is Marty DeBerge. I'm a filmmaker. One man dares to probe the hidden secrets. I was just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point. Even. Don't even point. point. No, it can't be played. Never. I mean, can I look at it? One man dares to hear the shocking answers. It's tragic, really. He exploded on stage. To questions like, is the world really ready for spinal tap? You put a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar with around dog collar. her neck and a, leash, and a leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, you don't, don't find that sexist? Well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. Well, this movie, is, as I mentioned, is a, a false documentary. Uh, Rob Reiner is the director, and he also plays the, the the fake documentary director, an alter ego by the name of Marty DeBerge. And as he sets forth in the in the film right away, he fell in love with this band called Spinal Tap back in the '60s when he first saw them appear live. Followed them through the years, uh, through thick and thin, and it's definitely a, a thin time in late 1982 for the band. The band is just about to release an album and go on their first American tour in about six years. And Marty DeBerge decides that he's going to document, he's going to chronicle the band and do a documentary and follow them on their, on their American tour. The band Spinal Tap uh, consists of, uh, well, the two founding members are David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell. St. Hubbins, as Matt has referred to, is played by Michael McKeon or Lenny. And Nigel Tufnell was played by Christopher Guest. They were boyhood friends. They joined a band pretty young. Uh, eventually, some other members joined them, including their current bassist, played by Harry Shear, Derek Smalls. And 32 drummers. Yeah, something like that. They have a keyboardist named Vic Savage and a drummer named Mick Shrimpton. And the drummers have all... Most of them have, have died uh, horrific deaths, and, and so there's like a curse of the drummer on the band. Anyway, they have this album that's about to, to be released. They're about to go on tour, and everything that, that could possibly go wrong goes wrong. And that's essentially the, the storyline of Spinal Tap. But this is not a plot-driven movie. This is a movie that I think is, well, first of all, it's very unique, and it's because of the process of the filmmaking that that sets it apart from conventional movies, and it was really an, an original. What what was unique in its time? It's not as unique now. A lot of films and television series have adapted that mockumentary style, and some of them do improv, and some of them some of them do not. Which is probably the least known about this film is that pretty much every scene is improvisation. Every scene is. Uh, there was no script, no word of of dialogue was written for this movie, and and the genesis of the idea was. Christopher Guest, Michael McKee, and Harry Shear started writing songs together. They're they're all very good musicians, good singers, and, and they all play. And it's it's them performing the music. Right? That's correct. Yeah, and they wrote these songs and created this alter ego band called Spinal Tap. This kind of aging heavy metal band, hair type glam band, and Rob Reiner also collaborated with them, and and they launched this alter ego band on 
a TV show that failed. They took this idea and decided, let's make a movie out of it. And Rob Reiner was selected to direct the movie. But this really is the brainchild of Christopher Guest, and that is the style of, of filmmaking is improvisational filmmaking. You don't have a script. You get actors together. You get a storyline worked out and a backstory of every character. And you give that backstory to each actor that's going to play the character so they know their character in and out. And they put them in the situation of the scene, and they're given basically the direction, make sure whatever you do, you tell the story that needs to be told in the scene. But dialogue-wise, do whatever you want to do. Right. And the, and the director yells action, and there's no rehearsal, there's no blocking, there's, there's nothing that happens before that other than the work that the actors have done on their own to prepare for these uh, improvised conversations that they have. And, and then they're just responding to the other actor's dialogue and you know what's being thrown out there and trying, first of all, not to laugh, I'm presuming, and then just going with it. And you yeah. follow the rules of improv, which is you never, never stop say, the scene never and never say, say no. Say no. <laughs> Michael Scott taught us that. <laughs> yeah, and unlike the type of improv that we're more familiar with, like on Whose Line Is It Anyway, or if you've gone to a live comedy improv troupe the groundlings in hollywood are really famous second city of course in chicago are really famous and there there are improv troops in virtually every city now yeah, their goal is to is to get the laugh and they're trying to be funny you know have a joke out there every 10 seconds here the goal is to explore the the relationships with, uh, relationships of the characters to develop a story and when you put really funny people together it's going to be funny and you put them in a funny circumstance with irony you're going to have funny results, and that's what happened here. But it, it could have been terrible. It could, it could have just failed miserably. But every person that is on screen hits it out of the ballpark, and they're so comfortable in the skin of these characters. That but specifically, from my perspective, Michael McKean and Christopher Guest, who probably talk 80% of the time in this film. I, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. They they are driving the film, no question about it, and they are phenomenal. Yeah, Rob Reiner is, I mean, you see him a couple times on screen, but most of the time he's off camera, possibly possibly even just setting it up, just asking a question, trying to prov provoke a response. Hence and, the fake documentary right. style. I mean, right. and Harry Shearer, who, I mean, I think he he's really funny, but he's more physical comedy in the background. What's, what's happening to him is his comedy, not necessarily what he's saying. Well, I like Harry Shearer because he... When you think of, of bands and bass players, they're kind of the guys you don't really remember. I mean, hardcore fans will know the bass player of their, their favorite group. But most of the time, these guys are just kind of in the background. And I love when they're interviewing Harry Shearer. Anthony Michael Hall and Van Halen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a running gag. Lunchtime movie. I love when they uh, interview Derek Smalls, and he's explaining that you know, St. Hubbins is the fire, and Nigel Tufnell is, is the ice, and he kind of views himself as lukewarm water. <laughs> well, and, and his reactions to everything that's going on is, is spot on. I mean, he, he sells the story, and he sells the, uh, the movie just by, by his reactions to, to the other two, Christopher Guest and, and Michael McKeon's what they're saying. As, as dense as all three of them are, Harry Shearer's by far the dumbest. But what I, I like to do, what I like about his character is he's smoking a pipe, which makes him appear that he's a little bit smarter than the other two, but you can see by... Or he his, solves crimes with a partner. <laughs> but you can see by his reactions to what's going on and some of the questions he's asking his other bandmates that he really doesn't have a clue 
on what the hell's yeah, happening. And, and that's a perfect segue for Stonehenge. We can we can pick that up now. Stonehenge is <laughs> thank you, Greg. Well, well sure. about time, Greg. Yeah, and and this is this is probably mid about midway through the movie, maybe a little bit more than yeah, towards midway. the end almost. And, yeah. and it, but it, it's it's kind of the seminal moment of the picture. The band is falling on hard times, and they're at their wits' end. Yeah, right. I, at, at this point, they they don't have an album they want. They got the the black album that nobody comes to their record signing. So they know it's not, no one's buying it. Their shows are being canceled across the country, and they decide to go back to uh, their prior success of Stonehenge. And you, you do reference that Stonehenge is brought up earlier in the film. Yeah, right after the, and I believe it's uh, Hellhole, one of their other songs where they show a live performance. And at the end of that song, the, the crowd goes crazy, the crowd of 300 or so people. And clearly you hear someone yell, do Stonehenge, which is great because it's like the free bird, you know, or stairway to heaven comment. And so that's that's sort of the setting up for this scene where Nigel says, look, I've got the answer. Let's revive Stonehenge. It's it's our best production number. We know the music. We don't even have to rehearse it. We can just do it right away. And he and, does this because Hubbin's girlfriend is is making them move in the direction of Kiss. She wants to dress them all up as different signs of the Zodiac to try to, to reinvent themselves for this younger audience. Right. And, and which Nigel thinks is a, is a joke. And he has the support of all the other band num- members except for David St. Hubbins, including the manager, Ian Faith, who just says, look, this is just going to cost too much. Nigel comes up with the idea of all we need is one of the triptychs of, of Stonehenge. And he draws on a napkin, just a very rough sketch of the stone. And Ian Faith grabs it and says, done. No problem. We can get this designed. We can, we can, and we'll get it up and running right away. Unfortunately, when he writes the dimensions of the Stonehenge model, he puts it as 18 inches instead of 18 feet. <laughs> and so the model maker builds the Played model. Played by Angelica Houston. Played by Angelica Houston which makes an 18-inch model. Apparently, the band members do not know this uh, going into the performance. Yeah, their manager fails to tell them. Has an argument with the designer and then realizes, well, I'm stuck with this 18-inch piece of styrofoam, so I I gotta go with it. And I do love his argument with Angelica Houston when she says, listen, you told me to build an 18-inch model. I built you an 18-inch model. And Ian is yelling at her that Stonehenge is as tall as four four grown men standing on on one another, and this is how big the model should be. And she says, look at the napkin. It says 18 inches, and Ian's only comeback is, fuck the napkin. <laughs> and the very next scene... Is them using the model. Is them using the model. Is this, and there's this... But with the band not knowing what's going on, right. just waiting for this massive Stonehenge to start... Coming down in the background. yeah from from the fly and 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 it and instead it's a it's an eighteen inch piece of foam. <laughs> but what do they do to make it appear bigger? Well, that's before the dwarves come out, oh. the dancing dwarves <laughs> in elf costumes. Yes, they're little druids. That's right, and they dance. They perform a little dance. <laughs> and and all all while Nigel Tufnell is breaking out into a little mandolin solo, and then he looks and realizes that two dwarfs are nearly crushing 
the yeah, monument of Stonehenge. But one the, of the argument after this happens about this disaster between the band member. Well, I mean, you're when you initially see it, you're still laughing. And I mean, at, yeah, at the dwarves getting caught in the in the wires that are bringing down <laughs> the 18 inch model. Uh, you're laughing at Christopher Guest with his uh, glitter eyeshadow, and he's trying to be all they're all wearing capes, they're mystical all, with his speech. Druid, right, yet he, he's right. listening to his Cogni accent, and uh, it switches right into the the after party. I mean, I'm not even going to say party, but afterwards in the hotel room with the band members. The postmortem. Right. Yeah, <laughs> screaming at one another of what's going on. I do not for one think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. Derek, this is where Derek Smalls this comes is, up with some sub- suggestions. Right, where Derek Smalls' brilliance comes out. Right. First, first he says maybe it's the choreography that, <laughs> <laughs> and the other band members are so what, what? What? Well, you know, we could move the dwarves <laughs> so they don't trot upon the triptych. And if you move the dwarves, maybe the model will look bigger in comparison. Right. <laughs> So they dismiss that and, and continue their argument, which ultimately leads Ian Faith to walk out. Right. Walk out. out. St. Hubbins is screaming. Toughnail is just beside himself. He can't believe he wrote 18 inches on the napkin. And it's really not kind of injecting himself. Into- right. And, and Ian Faith is, is arguing, look, it's not my job. I'm not the creative force of this band. My job is just to basically be the messenger in these. And you, you don't, if Nigel doesn't know the difference between inches and feet, that's not my fault. And David St. Hubbins, sticking up for his friend, says, but you're not as confused as he is. It's not your job to be as confused as Nigel. So at the end of this argument, Derek Smalls asks the one question that is just eating away at him. And he asks the other members, are we going to do Stonehenge tomorrow? <laughs> and that sums up Derek Smalls' character. And when they yell at him, no, he just kind of looks over and is like, oh, oh. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. All right. We've all, obviously, we've all seen this film, and I remember seeing it for the first time. And I'm, I'm just curious what you guys, at what point did you guys buy into this type of filmmaking and become very interested in saying, okay, I'm, I'm buying into it. I'm going to ride this one out. I want to see where this goes instead of just turning off this, this weird fake documentary about a band that doesn't really exist. I mean, was there, was there a moment where you, you had buy-in? The scene that I, I remember from uh, the first time I saw it, first of all, I didn't see it in the 80s. I actually probably saw it in 1991. And the first scene I remember what finally hooked me was just the dialogue when they're talking about the names that the names they were, went by in the sixties and seventies. Like, oh, we first were the originals, and then there was another originals. So then we became the new originals, and that just—I mean, just that just cracked me up. The, that would, was what I would call. And that's, wit that's right play. at the beginning. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was the wit that a fish called Wanda maybe was <laughs> shooting for, as manifested in this film. So. But no, that's that's where it hook, hooked me. And then, of course, the scene where, well, this one goes up to 11. This is a top to, uh, you know, what we use on stage. But it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11. And amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. 
You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at ten. You're on ten here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on ten on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere. Exactly. What we do is, if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to eleven. Eleven. Exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to eleven. You know that. I mean, just the, the kind of the hilarity of it, of you know the the simplicity of it. For me, it was the it was the really early on in the document when they're being interviewed about the drummers that have died. Your first drummer was uh, the Peeps. John Stumpy Peeps. Oh. Yeah. Great, great, uh, tall blonde geek with glasses. Yeah. Uh, good drummer. Great look. Good drummer. Good, yeah. Good yeah, drummer. Fine. What happened to him? He died. He he died in a bizarre gardening accident some years back. It's really one of those things. It was, you know, the authorities said, you know, best leave it, you know, it's not unsolved, bad, yeah. really. You know. And he was replaced by uh, Stumpy Joe. Eric Stumpy Eric Joe Child. Yeah. And Eric. what happened to Stumpy Joe? Well, uh, it's not a very pleasant story, but no. um, he's, uh, he passed. On. He died. Uh, he choked on. Uh, the, the official explanation was he choked on vomit. It's actually he uh, away. It was actually someone else's vomit. It's not exactly. <laughs> you know, there's no real. Well, they can't yeah, prove so whose vomit it was. They uh, never. They don't have no, facilities in Scotland Yard no to, to you print can't that really dust for vomit. Right, right there. I was in. I was like, all right, this is pretty funny because this is where you see kind of the brilliance of what Christopher Guest is doing with uh, all the different characters adding and contributing to their own idea of what's of what's happening clearly nobody had talked about how these drummers had died and it comes together right there i thought okay this is this is yeah yeah there's a spontaneity and a truth that you're just not going to get in conventional filmmaking and and again the reaction to the acting and this is it might seem overblown but (laughs) to watch michael mckeon's reaction and the way he's he's going through things i think he's a pretty freaking good actor this is lenny this is Lenny. He should have been having everyone else on Laverne and Shirley wipe his ass because he's a better actor oh, without than a doubt. anyone that's on that set. And he just comes in with Squiggy, and Squiggy gets the laugh of "Hello." I mean, he does. He's he's all he's got on on Laverne and Shirley is putting his fist in his mouth. I mean, that's damn you, Laverne and Shirley, for not using this guy. Yeah, damn you, Gary Marshall. Right. Yeah, for me, it it was them going through their albums and and what critics have said about their prior albums. <laughs> I forget it might be Intravenous to Milo, where it was where one critic said this is like treading in the sea of retarded sexuality, <laughs> and seeing the band's reaction. And, and Nigel get, says oh, that's nitpicking. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to the the infamous shark sandwich which was just a two-word review of Shit Sandwich and seeing all of them react uh, appropriately. You can't write that. You can't print that. You can't print that. <laughs> That's not real. Yeah. yeah. And at points, I saw it also in in the mid-'90s, so I did recognize... And again, this is this is the very beginning of the movie, so they... They establish it. They they have they have hooks right off the bat. And, and it yeah, is very subtle. Well. I mean, that's that's what is. You will miss stuff if you're not really paying attention. The lyrics of the of the music, uh, and just the little dialogue yeah, which that's are being hysterical over. and vulgar and all of the above. And, and, and you'll miss them because and you're clever just, too. Absolutely, and it's good music. I mean, yeah, it is. It, it the music itself would pass for what they're purporting it to be. Right, I agree. I and, think and Big that's Body why Girls is a great song. 
there were a, a lot of people that thought this was a real band and a real documentary about a real band when it came out, including Ozzy Osbourne apparently. <laughs> yeah, who's I, I understand, but who is who is kind of like Nigel, easily confused. <laughs> those were his, very, those were his drug years. Right. <laughs> Probably still now, he still but thinks this is a film. Well, it, it, it does terribly. I mean, it it it's a bomb. Oh no, it it didn't. But even it make... only cost a couple million to make, so it, it was still profitable. Amazingly, well, even though it got made their money back, even though it practically made no money at the box office. Yeah, but it was th- so cheap. This film is completely saved by the video industry because yeah. I mean, it was the hundred seventeenth highest grossing film of the year out of hundred and fifty. I mean, How much was, did it make in the theater? Just it was four and a half million dollars is all it made. That's its entire theatrical run. And well, and, and I really think the less than a million people who probably saw this in the theaters by word of mouth it, be, it developed this cult following and and, and it, it which, which led to vhs rentals and and people discovering this movie years after it came out and it works on 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 rental i think or on buying it on vhs or on dvd or whatever because this is a film to watch over and over and over again. Yeah, the, yeah. I, I think the second viewing is, is funnier than the first. Absolutely. Because you, you start, will miss a lot. Because there's so many details and so many subtle things that you, you aren't going to miss the first time, probably because you're laughing so and, hard. And it does bring up this discussion about cult film. I mean, there's I, I read a couple places that, that in 2010, somebody, uh, some publication uh, voted this as the number one cult film. Entertainment Weekly. Yeah. Some, some little, some little, little publication, whatever. Some, <laughs> Some I, you may have heard. I of don't them. know some blog or something. <laughs> whatever. So I mean, what causes a film to be a cult film? I mean, is it is it a term that's just is it agreed upon? Is it, it seems like it just means unprofitable, but a certain certain group of people like it. But this no, is more think, than that. I don't think it's unprofitable. I think sometimes in the cult film, it's just that there's layers. There's something that comes back to a repeat viewing, where people come back to it again and pull something different from it. And I think that and Spinal Tap. As Greg said, a lot I caught things the second time, and I actually watched the commentary, so that was basically the third time I'd seen it. Which is which is which is done by the characters in character. Which one? If you if you haven't seen the commentary, it gives a whole new depth and a whole new feeling to the film to hear that basically the characters narrate this experience of what happened twenty years before and talk about it from a different point of view. It doesn't give you any kind of you know background on what the film the making of the film was just the act just it's just more comedy it's a different act well, and these and these guys have you look and at, again all improvised yeah right. and you look yeah. at like what christopher guest has done for example you go on like imdb and see what he's he's done and, and they've done some of these films uh, you know the uh, a mighty wind best of show best in show and, and waiting for guffman but he is reoccurring as nigel tufnell in various Appearances, so they they have continued these characters and developed kind of a, I, I guess a, a real, a real identity. So it's funny you hear Derek Smalls in the commentary talk about, oh, remember when I used to smoke that pipe? Remember that pipe I used to have all the time? And so he is now not smoking a pipe. I mean, they they continue these real subtle things, and and the commentary does flesh that out. There's not a lot of films that I'd necessarily recommend watching the commentary. I had the misfortune of listening to. Kevin Bacon on Footloose. Another podcast, another podcast. But I would not recommend a comment listening to the commentary on most films. This this is a film you should buy on DVD and you should watch the commentary. You should watch the film, watch the commentary and watch the extras cuz they will continue the Stonehenge bit in some of the special features as to Live Aid. These guys show up in Live Aid 
and they have a Stonehenge uh, or Farm Aid, one of the two. <laughs> and they have a Stonehenge incident. I think it was this a time, Save the Whales concert. <laughs> this time, it's too big. I mean, it's, it is pretty damn funny. Yeah, I think one of the things is they're just believability. They never break. They never look to the camera and, and kind of wink at you. Well, no, and, I mean and, they just sell it. And for example, there there's a scene that takes place in a what amounts to like a fish and chip shop, you know, a, a, a fried shop where Saint Hubbins and and Nigel are are sitting. Marty's interviewing them, and they're talking about the first song they ever wrote, which is a real neat little moment. And then. Marty shifts it and says, you know, something that's that, that I've noticed about your fans is they're almost all boys. One thing that puzzles me um, is the makeup of your audience it seems to be uh, predominantly young boys. Well, it's a sexual thing, really. It's, aside from the identifying that the boys do with us, there's also like a, re- a reaction to the female of the female to our music. What was they're, it? They're really, they're quite fearful. Yeah, it was my theory. They see us on stage with tight trousers. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening. Yeah. The size. Yeah. And and they they run screaming. And. Michael McKeon laughs. I mean, David St. Hummins laughs, but it's a funny comment, so he's still in character. He's not breaking. It's a natural reaction to hear your friend say something funny. And it was actually zucchinis in their pants, not armadillos. Well, at least for Derek Smalls, that's correct. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that that's part of... They, you're right. They, they're in the moment the entire time. And like you said, they've, they've done these... They do these later. Christopher Guest, in particular, kind of spearheads these uh, these projects. With many of the same people that, right. that appeared here in, mm-hmm. in Spinal Tap, including some people that were in very minor roles. Well, one thing that I, f- I f- found interesting is just the tiniest bit part is Billy Crystal. Right. He's in there. I mean, this is... And Dana Carvey is, da- is his fellow mime. the other mime, is Dana oh, right. Carvey. He's on build, but if you watch the deleted scenes, he actually has dialogue. He's, supposed to, be, he's supposed to do the dead bird. <laughs> do the bird. And it's not working because no one's taking his uh, vittles, <laughs> his hors d'oeuvres that he's trying to serve. And, of course, by the time this movie had been released, at least I, I believe leading into that fall in 1984, I think is when Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest and Harry Shear joined the cast of Saturday Night Live for one season. Yes. Around, it was around that time, yeah. So the release of the film, they probably since they had held on to it for almost a year anyway, they probably should have just waited until right. Saturday Night Live came out uh, and then released it in the fall because maybe there would have been more of an audience. Hey, uh, even though Bill from Saturday Night Live, right, yeah. right, and Lenny, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, who was a frequent guest performer on Saturday Night Live and has been for going back a to long some time. of their interviews and just the the wit and the and the throwaway lines you might miss the first time around when Marty's again in this in the shop interviewing them he also mentions that asking St. Hubbins and, and Tough Nail if they believe that their music is racist you play to predominantly uh, a, a predominantly a white audience do you feel your music is racist in any way no no no, no of course all. not we you know we say we say love your brother we don't say it really but we don't literally say it no we don't say we it we don't really literally all. mean it no we don't but believe we're not it racist. either but that message should be clear anyway. We're anything but racist. <laughs> and it's just, it's so quick. Right. And you just can't believe that this is off the top of their head. Well, right. And, and very much, very similar to the conversation kind of that gets missed a lot with the Smell the Glove, the album cover, where they're being told why 
the record label doesn't want to release their cover because it's too sexist, it's too graphic, it's too misogynistic. And again, David St. Hubbins says, well, we're not making her smell the glove. And Nigel says, no, well, we are. We are making her smell the glove. And then Derek Smalls pipes in, but not over and over and over again. And again, those are lines that you're going to miss because you're already laughing at something right. funny that happened to the basically the setup. Well, we, we talked about joking about Michael Scott from The Office does an improv bit, and it, you can relate to that. Yeah, and, and, and the, office is clear, the Office is yeah, yeah, The Office is clearly, there's Derivative. no question, Spinal Tap influenced The Office. Well, and, and there's it, some talk that that's a lot of ad-lib and a lot of improv well, in The Office I mean, but, as well. That's why the writers and the executive, I mean, those are the people that are involved yeah. in The Office are all creative people. Yeah, I think, Rick, except Rick, after season three, they became unfunny. Yes. <laughs> It became the right. Pam and Jim have a baby show. So, yeah, right. So, but basically, I mean, Spinal Tap is almost twenty years ahead of its time. Is what it was. Is that you didn't see anything similar to this until the the two thousands. I mean, you didn't have a lot of films like the improvisation. Right, films and virtually every sitcom that comes out on NBC now is is a version of it uses the the faux Format, documentary right. style. And a lot of improvised comedy, a lot of looking directly into the screen, and if, and the and a lot of films are coming out that if if the whole thing's not like that, they will have portions where they're doing interviews and they're doing these things to to be able to advance the story and 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 get a laugh or whatever. The that kind of deadpan, uh, you know, Modern Family does it. I mean, all these films and TV shows have, have absolutely ripped ripped this off. So it is twenty years ahead of its time. I mean, arguably, it did do well in the theater, made some money. But didn't do well, but could be considered one of the more influential films in the of the eighties. The way it's influenced both television and the films now, and, and, and it's just recently. Right. <clears throat> and yeah. you can you could play this now, and it would stand up to any comedy that's going to come out of of Hollywood, and, and you're going to laugh harder on this than you would on on I don't know the Hangover, a fish called Wanda, two. whatever <laughs> one two one two four. They're same the yeah. thing. See, I wonder at the time that if because of who they're making fun of. You know, uh, hair metal bands of the 80s, which in 1984 are at near their peak. I mean, they have yet to hit the, the, the crest of their popularity. Maybe that is because it's who it's making fun of. That's why it's not as popular as it was. That basically. You, you mean know, in the 80s, that's why. It, oh, it sorry, wasn't in as the 80s. Yeah, it wasn't as popular as because those, the people, I mean, that's basically also their target audience. Those people weren't ready to be made fun of at that point in time. The, the, the people who like that kind of music, well, you know, me being one of them. And I didn't, I just didn't see the film in the 80s, but in the 90s, I thought it was hilarious because it was making fun of everything that I used to really enjoy and like. And, and in that's the, 80s. the interesting thing about it. In 84, in 82, when they make it, whatever. They absolutely nail kind of the weirdness and the oddity of hair metal and what's going on in concerts and amongst these groups and whatnot. They absolutely uh, nail what is what is happening in the moment and what is getting ready to happen over the course of the next five years that they haven't even experienced yet. And I think they nail the life of a band. What what happens at the tail end after they stop playing these large arenas? I I remember going to Magic Mountain. In the in 1994, and watch Survivor. I mean, I was at a Spinal Tap concert, <laughs> which, which is really the theme land where which Spinal is theme Tap land is is Six Flags where, Magic Mountain, where Spinal Tap is built below the puppet show. We wanted to see the puppet show, but we got Survivor. Right. <laughs> but I wonder if it would have done better had they built uh, had they marketed it for what it is, which is these are th- there is no script. They, these guys are just creating it as as they go. And I'm wondering if it certainly I think people would have appreciated it more once they. Yeah, because I, I, I look at reviews and and the critics and, and even critics fairly recently reviewing DVD releases of of Spinal Tap. Most of them had no idea. 
I mean, they, they talk about the brilliant script by Rob Reiner, and it's like, well, it's <laughs> there's really no script, <laughs> you know, and, and and yeah, so even even the people who were closest to you know the films who who write about them get paid to write about them and and might steer an audience into whoa, what is this? This is Spinal Tap, and and if this came out today, no do you think they'd market it as a comedy? Like if this was if Spinal Tap was let's say released in 1992. Or would they do kind of a Blair Witch thing where they would promote it as a real band and get that sort of, oh, we're going to go see a real documentary? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that would have made it more effective. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that people didn't get that this was, you know, a fake band back then. I mean, you had Lenny. Lenny. who was very obviously Lenny. Oh, I know. Carl, I know. Sorry, Rob Reiner. Meathead. Who was right. Meathead. I right. Mean, they're not. He, that's not. If he would have said, oh, I'm Rob Reiner, I'm making a documentary, I could see why people could be misled, but... There was very obviously recognizable television stars in the film. Well, it, it makes me think that the audience it found was a pretty dumb audience when <laughs> when when the audience they needed to find were, were people that pretty smart. Were, yeah, well, yeah, because the, it's satire. It's a very cleverly done piece, and there's so much subtlety to the humor and dryness to the humor that it's probably not going to play well with people that are you know high. And and speaking of yeah, or want dick and fart jokes. Well, well, yeah. And being ahead of its time, when Saint Hubbins is is at the end of the tour and he's talking about doing all the projects he wants to do, one of the projects he mentions is having the London Philharmonic do Spinal Tap songs. I mean, this is way before Metallica, uh, Metallica gets together with the San Francisco Symphony right. and does theirs. And it, I mean, that made me laugh. And then I thought, oh my God, Metallica's done that. Yeah, you know. You remember you team twenty years after right, this right. film. I went through the looking glass. Right. If you remember you two and Rattle and Hum, they go to Graceland. Which Spinal Tap does <laughs> about five and, years before. And this is probably the least racist film that we have reviewed so far uh in our in our podcast history. Did you notice that this I think it's in the record books, it has the most Asians on film in a non concu <laughs> movie ever. <laughs> Uh, so kudos. it is their biggest crowd. Kudos uh, to them. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the Asians generally are not well represented in film, and they've they've nailed it. Good, good for Spinal Tap. But they love their hair metal. They do love their hair metal. But there was no karate chopping. Right. So I mean, that is that's a step forward for them. So other than Patrick, who didn't like it today, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> who thinks it's dated? <laughs> so all right, Jason, what's your uh, take on Spinal Tap? Did you see it as a kid? Uh, no, I saw it. Well. I saw it in my around the end of my high school years, and uh, I loved it. I I showed it to all my friends after that, just waiting for them to to get to that Stonehenge scene to see if if they're reacting the same way I did when I when I first viewed it. I still love it. I still watch it periodically, and uh, lick my love pump. I saw it for the first time when I was twelve, and even at twelve, I I remember laughing very hard and and finding it hilarious and then the next time i saw it i was in high school and showed it with to a bunch of friends and much better perspective at that point i got a lot more of the subtlety and the, the dryness and and i i recommend as, as matt said you know see it at least two times and really try to see it with a with a group of friends because the laughter's contagious on this and it'll seem even funnier yeah, this would be great in a group absolutely. absolutely and there's jokes if you play it backwards if you watch it backwards there are different jokes in it my homage to 80s yeah. heavy metal right yeah. but yeah i loved it then and and i love it now i 
I, I think it's the funniest movie I've seen. There are fun, there are movies that are, are right up there with it, comedies that are right up there with it, but I don't think I've ever seen anything that surpasses it in in laughs. And it's eighty minutes. It's just perfect length. Well, both you and Jason had recommended mentioned to me before I watched it that there's an hour's worth of deleted scenes on the disc. They did it. About two thirds of the movie was done on either one or two, or the first or second take, and they never did more than three takes because that style of of improv, you're right. It, the, the spontaneity is going to go after the third one, and then trying to edit it is, is going to be a lost cause because they're not saying the same dialogue in each in each. Well, take. I think you messed that up. Can you try that one one more time? <laughs> yeah, right, right. So we'll fix that in post. But, but they 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 filmed a lot, and so it's really much a, a success of editing as it is of, of performance, and and it's. It's very well edited because watching the outtakes, they were all good choices. What we see on the DVD, they made good choices. They weren't necessary for right. I mean, understanding the story. Quick, Jason, a fish called Wanda and Spinal Tap playing in two different rooms. Which one do you go to? I stand in the middle and I keep <laughs> rotating my head back and forth between. That the is two. not an option. <laughs> no, no. You guys had both said that they made good decisions, and I watched the deleted scenes just to see it, and I. I agree with you that the 80, 84 minutes or whatever is on screen is the perfect amount. Tells the story. The funniest, the funniest bits are there. There's very little that the deleted scenes add. I didn't see it until I was in college and uh, in the early '90s, and there was kind of this resurgence of it. And I liked, I really liked the film then. And I'd seen it, I, I'd seen portions of it on in television over the years, but I had not seen it from beginning to end since then. And I was surprised how much how, how much funnier that I now that I'm seeing it that it, it was to me because there was things that probably flew by me. There's there's a lot of layers to it. There's a lot of jokes that come so quick on top of each other that you'll miss one because you're laughing at the other. And and then the commentary. This is probably of the films we reviewed. This is the best commentary that uh, most enjoyable commentary to listen to. Yeah. I, I remember seeing it as a kid, real young, and not really getting it. My brothers were really into it, and so. You had to say you liked it type type thing because all your family members do, but I don't remember not really getting it and watching it again. I mean, it was uh, I was really into it. I thought it was hilarious. I would watch it over and over again. And I talked about you know on our other podcast talked about you know Blade Runner how it became interesting, but I'm not willing to commit to the time necessary in order for it to to become interesting. I guess, but this is the opposite. I mean, I would watch everything that these guys did as these characters and i think it's cutting edge it is 20 years ahead of its time and it stands up today uh tomorrow and in five years i think i'll still be we'll still be watching this and and laughing over it and still catching jokes that you didn't get the last time that you watched it which i think is what makes it a brilliant comedy mark your calendars listeners because it's very rare that we all agree to such a degree that this film is is great. So I think we're just going to stay in here and make out for a little Absolutely. while. Especially considering this didn't do really well. I mean, I get Jason because he's the littlest one. <laughs> can man manhandle him. This took a really weird Force him to lick your love puppy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you 18 inches of Stonehenge. Called the police. <laughs> All right. Check out our webpage at lunchtimemoviereview.com. Send us a comment and an email on the po- this podcast as well as the other podcasts as well as like us on Facebook at lunchtimemoviereview.com. We got to get out of here right now and you all are invited.
This podcast is not endorsed by Rialto Pictures and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. This is Spinal Tap, all names and sounds of This is Spinal Tap characters, and any other This is Spinal Tap related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Rialto Pictures or their respective trademark and or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Movie House Memories and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment LLC unless otherwise noted.